Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for loving us. We thank you, Father, for uh, your presence here this morning. Thank you, Father, that you have drawn us all together, and not only under the cross, not only uh, through Jesus Christ, but you call us to responsibility. You call us to uh, a greater good, a good that's greater than, than us. And uh, Father, I pray that as we open your word, that you will allow us to, uh, to sit, to stand, um, to be in your presence, uh, but also to respond. Um, help us to be your church, God. Uh, we recognize it all comes by, by your grace, by your love, by your compassion. Um, I'm so grateful, Father, for what you do. Grateful for this opportunity. Thank you for being our God. In Christ's name, amen. Hey, find the book of Ezra, the Old, book, the Old Testament book of Ezra. And we're going to look at a couple of passages there, beginning in Ezra chapter 7. So if you will find Ezra, who was a, a scribe, if you know what a scribe does, a scribe notes uh, God's words. He, he, uh, uh, the, the New Testament word would be amanuensis, and so Paul, because of his lack of vision, would have people like Tychicus and others writing down as Paul would uh, uh, dictate what needed to be written down, and so that's called an amanuensis. Before we got that word in the New Testament, we have the Old Testament uh, word of scribe, and this is a picture of a scribe, maybe Ezra, maybe not, but you can recognize all the work that he's doing. Um, in the ancient Near East, by the way, those uh, pieces of parchment or pieces of paper, they, they are pretty expensive, and so you, you can imagine the, the tedious work that, that a scribe was, was doing. It was all about worship, wasn't it? I was thinking just uh, a few minutes ago as we were worshiping in song, what is, what is worship? Uh, if you're not aware, the word worship means to value something, to give worth to something. That's worship. And so sometimes we sing uh, songs and we call it worship, right? We're recognizing, recognizing who, who God is. And I don't know about you. No, I do know about you. Um, and I know about myself, Right? And I'm prone to, this is just honesty, okay? I'm prone to listen to all the off-key notes rather than truly worship. You follow what I'm saying? Or I'm prone to, well, I don't like that song, so I'm not going to sing that song. But worship is not about me. It's not about the songs. It's not about whether the piano's being played or not. It's about a mindset. It's about attributing value to something else. You follow what I'm saying? So a scribe would be writing down words on some kind of paper, parchment, papyrus, whatever the case may be, and that was a form of worship for him. We worship in prayer every time we get together and we acknowledge who God is. Prayer is not just gimme, 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 get me out of the situation. Prayer is acknowledging that God is greater than all these things that we that we see in our life, right? Reality is that God is greater than all these things, right? That's a way of worship. We worship as somebody gets up and invites us around the table and reminds us that it's not about us. It's not about a little piece of bread or a cracker. It's not about a little cup of juice. It's all about God. It's all about Jesus. And so we worship and we remember what Jesus did for us. Many of our tables have this 
engraved or written upon them, this do in remembrance of me. Right? It's a way to worship. You know, you can be here and not ever worship. You, you can sing songs. You can put money in the offering plate. You can take communion. You can open God's Word and read words on a page and never worship. Just a, just a thought. Um, not just these next few minutes, but every time we gather, uh, if we really believe we're followers of Jesus Christ, if we've really committed to what God has called us to, our lives are, as Paul says, they're not our own. That we worship in song, that we worship in prayer, that we worship through communion, that we worship through opening God's Word. I pray that your life is that living sacrifice that Paul describes, a spiritual sacrifice of, of worship, of acknowledgement that God is God, and the only way we exist, the only reason that we're here is because of Him and not because of us. That should be our motivation. Before we get into Ezra chapter 7, I'm going to read a text to you from 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you're taking notes, I would encourage you to take a, take a note of 2 Timothy chapter 3 and chapter 4. I'm not going to read both chapters because we don't have time. But I would ask you sometime today, sometime this week, sometime in the next few hours before it's too far gone from your minds, go back and read 2 Timothy chapter 3 and chapter 4. I'm going to read from the New Revised Standard Version, and here's what it says. He says, you must understand this, that in the last days distressing times will come. For people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy inhuman, implacable, slanderers, profligates, brutes, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Quite a description, right? Holding to the outward form of godliness but denying its power. Avoid them, Paul tells Timothy, Avoid them, Paul tells the church. Avoid them, Paul tells even you and I. For among them are those who make their way into households and captivate silly women, overwhelmed by their sins, swayed by all kinds of desires, who are always being instructed and can never arrive at a knowledge of the truth. As Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these people of corrupt mind and counterfeit faith also oppose the truth. But they will not make much progress because as in the, day, the case of those two men, their folly will become plain to everyone. For the sake of time, I'm going to read a verse from chapter 4. It's chapter 4, verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not put up with sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own desires. Before we get into the book of Ezra, let me ask you to consider what it means to worship. Who are your spiritual mentors? Who are your spiritual heroes? Who are people in your life who have poured into your faith?
faith journey. I mean, I can think of people that I've mentioned before from this podium that my grandmother, for instance, right? If I needed somebody, my, my mother-in-law, if I, if I want somebody to pray, there are people in my life that have poured into me. Perhaps that's your testimony as well, that your grandmother or your grandparents, or maybe there's somebody in your life that has prayed for you and prayed for you and prayed for you, and they continue to pray for you, and you ought to consider that a great blessing. There are other people in my life that, although they thought maybe it was a small thing, they were, they were huge blessings for me if they took the time to teach children's church or if they spoke to me during a Sunday school class or outside of a formal setting if they encouraged me or if they told me what I was doing was wrong, that I needed change. There are people like that in my life that I can look back upon and say, those are people that God used for my spiritual journey to recalibrate what I needed to do, right? Get me back on the right track. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Is that resonating with anybody? There are friends, um, and I'll grant you, they're few and far between in my life that, that know more than anybody else knows about me, and yet they love me anyway. And there are people that I can call all hours of the night and say, this is what I'm going through. This is what I'm struggling with. We don't have conversations like, how's the weather? You understand what I'm saying? We're real, we're real with each other. We, we talk um, in honest uh, ways, with integrity, with character. And if you don't have people like that in your life, you need to have somebody, right? Jesus, even during his public ministry, he had who? Peter, James, and John. These, these three within the, the circle of 12, even within that circle, they had, he had three Right? They got to see things that nobody else got to see. That perhaps had conversations with Jesus that nobody else got to have. These people that you pour into and they pour into you. That's what relationship is really, is really all about. So when you ask them, how are you doing? They're, you know what you're talking about. They know what you're talking about. And I'm looking at the guys because most of us guys aren't real comfortable with those kind of relationships. And because, listen, and because we're not real comfortable with those relationships, we can never be all that God intends for us to be. I'm not overstating that. If you're just okay with having relationships on a surface level, you will never be the follower of Christ that God intends for you to be. You need relationship. You need community. You need people that know everything about you and love you anyway. You need people who you've invested in to be able to tell you the truth, although the truth may hurt. And you need to be able to invest in others and say, you know what, I'm convicted about something. We talked about conviction and accountability and all those things over here just a few moments ago. You need to have somebody that you are convicted about something, that you need to share with that person things that, that you believe that God wants them to know. Right? Relationships are two-way street. Ezra is one of those guys. Uh, before we read from chapter 7, I want to remind you of the scene, the context, and what's going on. The church has been, the church, the, 
the Israelites, the, the Hebrews, they've been split up because of sin. Half of them have been taken off to Babylon. Half of them have been taken off to Assyria, right? 722, 586. But eventually the king signs a decree and they're allowed to come back, but Jerusalem has been completely destroyed. Completely to include the temple, right? And so we get a guy named Nehemiah who uh, God places upon his heart that he's going to go back and rebuild the walls, if you remember Nehemiah, right? And he goes back and he uh, recruits people to help out because he believes wholeheartedly this is what God wants him to do, right? This is a thing of worship, right? This is the reason that we act the way we act, because of what God has done for us. That is the gospel, right? So I'm required to do something because God has done something for me, and for Nehemiah that was rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. Fair enough? For Ezra, it's going back and rebuilding the temple. If you think about the Old Testament times, the temple is what? It's the presence of God, right? It symbolizes we have the outer courts, we have the inner courts, and eventually we get to the Holy of Holies where it symbolized the presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant. God is within this place. Pretty big task, right? That's the Ezra that we're talking about. Ezra, it's placed upon his heart. He's called to do something that nobody else is called to do, although he will be like Nehemiah, and he will recruit people who have a passion for God, who has a passion upon their lives to rebuild, rebuild the temple. The same Ezra who is the scribe is also, in a sense, a prophet. Now let me, let me read for you, and I think you'll, you'll understand. I'm going to point out a couple things to you and ask you to, you know, oftentimes the comparison game is not a healthy thing to do. You guys know what I mean by comparison game? Where... Um, we're prone to compare ourselves to people that may not quite be on our spiritual level. Um, that's unhealthy. If we're going to compare ourselves to anyone, we ought to compare ourselves to Jesus Christ. Right? The author, the perfecter of our faith. But I'm going to kind of go, I'm going to be out of line for just a few moments. And I'm going to say, let's look at Ezra one of these vague Old Testament characters that maybe you've heard the name Ezra before, but you really don't know his story. So I'm going to give you permission to play the comparison game this morning. And I'm going to play along with you, right? And we're going to see good things, good characteristics, with integrity, with character. We're going to see how Ezra should be not only our brother in Christ, not only our, our, our fellow follower of God, but he's somebody that we should follow in regards to what he does. Okay? Ezra chapter 7. Here's what it reads from the New Revised Standard Version. After this, in the reign of King Artaxerxes of Persia, Ezra the son of Sarai, the son of Azariah, the son of Tokiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Marioth, the son of Zariah, the son of Uzai, the son of Bukai, the son of Abishua, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of the chief priest Aaron. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given, and the king granted him all that he asked. Now, if you're reading this for the first time, if you're just hearing this being read to you for the first time, when you hear that phrase, and God granted him all that he asked, you ought to pay attention. You follow what I'm saying, right? In other words, this guy has a perfect or, or an end with God, right? He's, he's living in, 
in a righteous way that God recognizes and God blesses him. Okay? And the king granted him all that he asked as well, for the hand of the Lord was upon him. Now some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, the temple servants, also went up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. They came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. And on the first day of the first month, the journey up from Babylon was begun. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem for the gracious hand of his God was upon him. Man, when I when this body dies one day, um, you guys know that these funeral folders you get, when you go to a, a funeral, uh, sometimes they say something about the deceased. Um, or there's a scripture verse, or you guys know what I'm talking about. What if it said, for the gracious hand of the Lord was upon him? Can you think of a better testimony, right? For, for the gracious hand of the Lord was upon her. They, they lived in such a way that God blessed them. Was, there, was their life perfect? No. God doesn't call us to perfection. That's impossible. We're all infiltrated with sin, right? But God calls us to obedience, and God calls us to a special relationship with our Creator. I can't think of a better testimony to think for the, the gracious hand of the Lord was upon us, was upon Him. That's this, that's this Ezra that we're talking about, right? Now notice what it says in verse 10. You got your Bibles? Look at verse 10. Three things I see here in verse 10. Here's the comparison game. How do you, how do you compare to Ezra, right? Why is Ezra such that he's described as, for the gracious hand of the Lord was upon him? Now here's the evidence. Verse 10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord. That's number one. Number two, he had set his heart to do it. Okay? And number three, he had set his heart to teach the statutes and ordinances in Israel. Do you hear that? Right? What sets this Ezra apart? What, it, it's not that he's in the right place at the right time, although that may be part of it, but God calls him because he has a special relationship with God, and God says that, hey, Ezra, I'm going to do great things through you, and because I have a special relationship with you, and because you're obedient, I'm going to allow you to rebuild the temple. And the writer describes for us the evidence of who Ezra is. Let me ask you, would it be said about you that you have a heart to study the law of the Lord? Would that be a testimony that somebody in your family said, you know what, they spend, they, they spend the time in their life, a, a significant amount of time in their life, and they want to know what God's will is for them, for their family. I'm not talking about 20 or 30 minutes on a Sunday morning. I'm not talking about a Bible study from 7 to 8 on a Wednesday night or Thursday night or a 3 o'clock meeting on Thursday. Those are all well and good. I'm talking. We've already talked about you can sing songs and not worship. You, you can read from the Word and not Worship. You follow what I'm saying? I'm talking about, is your motivation when you open a leather 
bound or fake leather, pleather, whatever. Soft back edition, smartphone that has Scripture written as you scroll, right? Is your motivation when you read these words just to read the words or do you expect to hear from God? Do you hear the difference? There's a huge difference, right? Ezra, Ezra, excuse me, Ezra, part of his character, part of what what sets him apart so that God could use him was number one, he had set his heart. In the Old Testament, we can never (coughs) do justice to, to this phrase, set his heart. Because when you set your heart, there's this idea of, I'm not going to be distracted by anything else. I'm going to focus right here, and that's the only thing I'm focused on. I'm going to set my heart on studying God's Word. I've mentioned to you before, when somebody comes to me and says, you know, I don't, I don't really know what God wants me to do. Or, or I'm trying to figure out what I, I need to do job-wise or, or in, in certain scenarios. And my question has always been, how much time have you spent in God's Word and how much time have you spent praying? I'm not talking about just reading words on a page. I'm talking about listening. Listening through God's Word to what He would have you learn. And not only learn, but respond to. Right? That's what it means to study the Word of the Lord. That's what it means to study God's Word. Ezra was so caught up in God's Word, hearing from God, and notice he didn't have what we have today. The leather-bound edition called the Bible. Right? He was doing that. We just showed you a couple of minutes ago, right? He's doing this over and over and over again. And he's so caught up in what God would have him to know. Man, I want to be like that. I really really want to get to such a place where I have an end with God. And it happens through studying His Word. What was the second thing it says in verse 10? It wasn't just studying His Word. It was that He would be obedient enough to do it. Right? We can hear, some of us in our Bible study this morning, we talked about the response, right? You can, be, you can hear things. You can be convicted about things in your life that need to change. But it's not until you put one foot in front of the other. It's not until you do it. It's not until you're obedient that, that something has actually taken place. Do you follow what I'm saying? I think one of the things that the church does as we gather around the table and as, I mean, I'm a preacher, I should say this, right? I think as somebody gets up here and reminds us of the goodness of God or points us toward Jesus Christ, that one of the things that they need to do is they have, must have heard from God and shared God's message with the church, Right? And we expect, whether you walk down the aisle, whether somebody comes to Christ that day or not, there's something that goes on called a response that that there has to be something done in each individual heart. You follow what I'm saying? Now sometimes that requires you to come forward in front of the church and say, you know what, I was convicted and I'm going to respond this way. There are other times that you're convicted to pray and repent and change in the very seat that you are. There are other times that somebody gets in the baptistry and says, you know what, I've got to die to self, and I'm going to let God do what God does, right? 
But in, in other words, there's always a response. There should always be a response. When you're by yourself and you open up God's Word, right? And you read from God's Word. If you're not praying about conviction, if you're not praying about God speaking to you, if you're not acknowledging that there must be a response from me, then you're not really meeting with God. We get so caught up in, well, how long should my quiet time be? Five minutes, ten minutes, fifteen? No, that's not what it's about. It's about hearing from God, right? And it may be five minutes and you hear from God. And it may be 30 minutes, right? And you hear from God. Or it may be John Wesley where you have to get up every morning at 4 o'clock and you pray and you pray and you pray and you get into God's Word and eventually God speaks to you. And you hear from God. You follow what I'm saying? Now what do you do when you hear from God? Ezra studied the law of the Lord. He studied what God would have to say, right? And then he responds in a way of obedience. I think all too often, all too often we uh, think that salvation is a one-time thing. We walk down the aisle, we say a sinner's prayer, or repeat something after the preacher, we get into the baptistry, and we think we're into heaven. That's not biblical. It happens over and over. Paul would say it this way, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament says, you have been saved. Christ was hanging on the cross. That's past tense, right? You have been saved. You are being saved. You get that? That's present tense. You are being saved. That means every time you open the Word, every time you pray, every time you recognize God's goodness in your life, despite what your circumstances are, you're, you're recognizing God's faithfulness, right? We just talked about it a few minutes ago. God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes, right? Do you believe that? Why don't we live that way? Right? So it's about obedience. It's about not just feeling bad when you leave this place. It's not about you know, somebody walking out and saying, oh, Pastor, you stepped on my toes today. Well, I didn't step on your toes. That was God, you heard, right? Now, how will you respond? It was not just that he was interested in the law of the Lord. He responded. And finally, you get to a place where you teach. That's what it says, right? That's the third thing in verse 10. Ezra taught. Well, I could never teach. Really? If you're a follower of Jesus, you're remember the Great Commission? Go into all the world. Go into all the world. Teach, preach. No, that's the pastor's job. No, it's not. It's, it's, it's every one of us. If you've met Jesus, if you've fallen in love with Jesus, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you sign your name on the dotted line. Your job description requires that you know the law of the Lord, that you obey it, and that you teach it. You teach it to your children, right? You, every time they get up, you start take, talking about the Word of God. Before they go to bed, you... That's what the Old Testament says, right? Over and over and over again, we, we teach one another. Those of you who've been in my Bible study, whether it's in here, up there, wherever it happens to be, you will understand, I don't lecture. Right? Why is that? Well, because I think one of the things, one of the ways I learn is it's not by lecture. It's about teaching. And I offer you the opportunity to teach me. And somebody else teaches us both. You get the idea? Right? So this idea of dialogue, 
this idea of we, as we gather around the table here, and as she gets up and leads us in songs, or somebody else gets up here and tells us about how, how good God is, or we hear testimonies from time to time, we're teaching, we're reinforcing what we already know, right? We're, we're teaching one another the goodness of God. You follow what I'm saying, right? This is Ezra. Now, I've spent way too much time on that one particular point. But I want you to see in chapter 7, verse 10, let's play the comparison game. And let me ask you before we move on, do you, when you open God's Word, are you interested in what God would have to say? Are you so interested that you're going to do, whether it's comfortable or it's uncomfortable, are you going to do what God would have you do? And are you willing to teach? Are you at such a level on your spiritual journey? Have you become a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ? And in a humble way, you're telling others about the goodness of Christ, about God, right? That's the gospel. That's what we're called to do. Everybody understand? You follow, right? Now let's move on. Chapter 8. So, when God calls us to do something, how many of you have been called by God to do something? We all have. Whether you want to do it or not, you've all been called by God to do something, right? My experience has been that every time we're called by God to do something, Satan rears his ugly head. And he's going to try to prevent you from doing anything and everything that God has called you to do. Right? Um, there's always this fight. There's always this struggle. There's this, you know, I, I, I'm reminded right quick of, of, of Genesis chapter 32 when, when Jacob knows that God has called him to go out and make amends with his brother Esau, but before he goes out and makes amends with his brother Esau, he has to fight this quote-unquote man by the river Jabbok, right? And they fight all night long, right? It's not just this, it's over, right? No, it's a struggle all night long. When God calls you to do something, there's a real struggle that goes on both internally and externally, right? So it's some, if it's something comfortable, if you're always praying comfortable prayers, then you're not, you're not praying with a whole lot of faith. You follow what I'm saying? Well, there was, there was tension. Uh, there was struggle for Ezra. Not everything quite fell into place. Notice in chapter 8, look down at verse 15, and let me encourage you to go back and, and read some of this. He's, uh, there's some names that are kind of hard to pronounce, but what I want you to see this morning is there's this, there's this struggle, there's this tension, there's this battle going on not only within Ezra, but within the whole community that Ezra is called to. Verse 15, So I gathered these people by the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped for three days. As I reviewed the people and the priests, I found there none of the descendants of Levi. You remember who the Levites were, right? They were the priests. So I sent for Eleazar, Ariel, Shemaiah, Anathan, Jerob, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, Meshulam, who were leaders, and for Jorab, and Elnathan, who were wise. And they sent them to Edo, the leader of the place called Casaphia, telling them what to say to Edo and to his colleagues, the temple uh, servants, namely to send as ministers for the house of our God. Since the gracious hand of our God was upon us, 
They brought us a man of discretion of the descendants of Mali, of, of Mali, son of Levi, son of Israel, namely Sherebiah, with his sons and kin eighteen. Also another guy, and with him Jeshiah, and the descendants of Moriah, with his kin and their sons twenty, besides two hundred twenty of the temple servants, whom David and his officials had set apart to attend to the Levites. Those were all mentioned by name. Now, notice what it says here in verse 21. And then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahiva that we might deny ourselves before our God to seek from Him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and our possessions. I want to focus right now on verse 21. I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahiva. Now, oftentimes, we in the West, we read about fasting in the New Testament, right? Jesus doesn't say, if you fast. He says, when you fast, right? You should fast, right? And we've talked about fast several times in here, right? Fasting can be from food, it can be from television, it could be from whatever it is that's taking precedence in your life, right? You should fast, right? When you fast, what's the purpose of fasting? It's not just to give up something, although that's part of it, right? It's not just to sacrifice, although that's part of it. What is it for Ezra? And what should it be for us? To deny ourselves. You see that? Verse 21, so I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava. Here's the motivation that we might deny ourselves before our God. To seek from Him a safe journey for ourselves. But that phrase, to deny ourselves before our God, that's huge, right? We, we talk about worship, we talk about singing a few songs, and we talk about somebody leading us into the presence of God by way of communion meditation and offering meditation. We gather around this table and all of these things attribute to denying ourselves and being in the presence of God so that we can hear from God. And yet all too often in the church, I'm talking about church, general, big church, this denying ourselves is foreign to us. You know why? Because it's all about me. Or it's all about you. Why does Paul help to tell the church in Galatia, in Ephesians, in Philippians, in Colossians, every time he writes, it seems like. There's a couple more times that more so than others, but for the most part, every time he writes, he talks about this word submission. Why does he want, that's a dirty word, right? If you remember the 80s, it was a really dirty word. We don't want to submit to anybody. We don't want to be slaves to anybody. You know why? Because it's all about us. And God says, when you come to Christ, you are slaves not of yourselves, you are not slaves of Asherah, or Baal, or your material possessions, or anything else you've worshipped in the past. You are now slaves to Jesus Christ. Paul would go on to say, it is no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. He recognized that he's now a slave toward Jesus Christ. He's a bondservant toward Jesus Christ. But you must deny yourself. The whole picture in Romans chapter 6, some of you are going through Larry's class in Romans. The whole picture in Romans chapter 6, 3 and 4, is you die to yourself. We've talked about it in recent weeks. The only thing you bury is something that's dead, right? You die to yourself. You're risen to walk in a newness of life. You deny yourself. That's what it means to be that spiritual sacrifice that he goes on to talk about in Romans chapter 12. So let me ask you this morning. Not only are you interested in what God would have to say, are you doing it? That goes back to chapter 7, verse 10, right? Are you teaching it? And right here in chapter 8, verse 21, have you denied yourself? Because you can never repent 
and go the other direction, if you're still listening to yourself more than you're listening to the Holy Spirit. Make sense? Number three. I'm running short on time. Let's look over at... Well, let me read the beginning down in verse 31 real quick, and then we'll drop down to verse uh, chapter 9. So we left the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was upon us, and He delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from our ambushes along the way. God's provided safety, right? Just like they prayed about. We came to Jerusalem. We remained with them there three days. And on the fourth day, within the house of our God, the silver, the gold, the vessels were weighed into the hands of the priest Merimoth, the son of Uriah. With him was Eleazar, the son of Phinehas. And with him were the Levites, Josabad, the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, the son of Bunai. The total was counted and weighed, and the weight of everything was recorded. Just like it was back in Leviticus when they were told, this is exactly what you should do in the temple of God. Because it's not your temple, it's not your church, it's God's temple, it's God's church. Therefore, it's about God. Chapter 9. After these things have been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons. Listen. For thus the holy seed has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands, and in this faithlessness the officials and leaders have led the way. Verse 3. When I heard this, I tore my garment and my mantle. I pulled hair from my head and beard, and I set appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, they gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. Can I ask you a question this morning? What does sin mean to you? Oh, it's just something I do. No, it's much more than something you do. It's something that severs a relationship between you and God. Do you understand that? I mean, I don't think we have a healthy definition of sin. The easy definition in the New Testament is the word amartia, right? Which means missing the mark. So think for a second, if you will, if you've got a, a, a bullseye, right? And this bullseye on this target is dead center, right? Right in the middle. You all know what a bullseye is, Right? The idea of God's will is hitting the bullseye every time. Every time I'm hitting the bullseye. But if I miss the bullseye, upper left, wherever it happens to be, if I miss that bullseye, it's sin. It's not the will of God. You follow? Right? So God intends for us to hit the bullseye every time. The question is, how are we going to hit the bullseye every time? And the answer is, I can't on my own. And the answer is, you can't on your own. In other words, what allows Ezra to focus on the law of the Lord? He's got an end with God, right? What, what causes Ezra to be obedient to God? He, he loves God with all that he is. I mean, that's what scribes do, right? They, they recognize there's a, there's a relationship with God. And the last thing I want to do if I have a relationship with somebody is to hurt them, right? So he has a relationship with God. So much so that he experienced pain, right? He's just like you and I. He's got this flesh about him, and so he's missed the mark from time to time, and so I want to teach you, as I've missed the mark, hey, don't do what I've done. Always 
aim for the bullseye. Right? That's the reason we fast. That's the reason we pray. That's the reason we deny ourselves. That's the reason we go back to what is God's will for whatever it happens to be that He's called us to do. Notice what sin means to Ezra and those that he leads back to Jerusalem. Right? The, the description here, when I, heard, when I heard that, hey, these guys don't take this holiness seriously at all. Leviticus 11.44, Be holy because I'm holy. Those are high expectations, are they not? God has high expectations for His people. In, in Peter, we're told, you are a holy priesthood. You are a people belonging to God. There are high expectations for you. Therefore, you should live. You are royalty. The descriptions we see throughout Scripture, they're, they're huge and they mean something. Words mean something. And if we don't take them seriously, if we just kind of go, yeah, I know I'm supposed to be holy. Yeah, I know I'm supposed to associate myself with Jesus Christ and His righteousness. Yeah, I know I'm supposed to hit the bullseye, but I'm just a sinner. I'm just a... No, no, you're a follower of Jesus Christ and, and your sin, that which separates you from God, right, should be acknowledged. And not only acknowledged, you should feel grief about it. You should feel some kind of severing, some kind of real pain. Ezra, when I heard this, I tore my garment, I tore my mantle, I pulled hair from my head. Have you ever pulled hair from your head or pulled hair from your beard, right? And I said appalled. When's the last time you said appalled by your sin? When's the last time I said appalled by my sin? And all who trembled at the words of God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I said appalled till the evening sacrifice. I gave you permission to play the comparison game with the life of Ezra. Interested in God's Word? Are you obedient to do God's Word? Are you at such a place in your spiritual journey? And I'm not talking about formal teaching, but if that's what God calls you to do, then great, let's do some formal teaching. But maybe it's informal teaching. Maybe it's teaching your neighbors. Maybe it's teaching your family members. Maybe it's witness that God wants to do through your life. Are you... Are you able to discern when God calls you to share the gospel and follow through on sharing the gospel? Are you such a prayer that sometimes you're called to fast and pray about denying yourself and praying that the community, the society, the church, everything in which we live would deny ourselves and give it all back to God because He's the rightful owner? Do we recognize holiness is something that comes from God, and yet He calls us to a greater responsibility of hitting the bullseye every time? Our motivation should be walking step in step with God, knowing full well that when we don't, and we won't all the time, that God's a gracious God, but that's not a free pass to missing the mark. You follow what I'm saying? God's expectations are God's expectations. My challenge to you, my challenge to me, is let's follow after Ezra's example. Better yet, let's follow after Jesus' example. Deny himself, and as he says, take up the cross and follow him. Let's pray. Father, for your word, uh, for the example we have in Ezra, 
I pray that you would help us not only to hear, uh, but help us to respond. If there's someone here today, God, that doesn't know um, the faithfulness of God, doesn't know the love of God, doesn't know the grace of God, I pray today is the day um, that salvation takes place. Help us not to be Pharisees. Help us not to be legalists. Help us not to be just law-abiding citizens, but motivate us, God, to do the things for the right reasons. Give us a passion, God, for your word. May we be obedient. May we be able to teach it to those that come after us, whether they're younger or not. May we confirm to one another of, of your goodness over and over again. May we be so committed, not spiritual, but so, so committed that we're willing to fast, that we're willing to give up something, that we're willing to deny ourselves and let you be God. And Finally, and perhaps most importantly, may you find us to be faithful. May you find us to be holy. May you find us to be set apart from the world in which we live. It's amazing that you, you think we're worthy enough to go into this filthy world and make an impact, but we know it's not because of us. We know it's all because of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would hear our hearts, God. I pray that you would, uh, that you would convict where needed, that you would challenge with things that we need to change, that you would confront us with truth. By the power of Christ, I pray. Amen.